You're listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church, Van Alstine. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Now here's Pastor Mike. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we're in a Sunday morning series called Hold Firm, Getting a Grip on the Confession of Our Faith. And uh, it's in this series that we are studying some of the foundational doctrines uh, principles which guide our faith and practice. And uh, for us as Southern Baptists, uh, for our church particularly, those doctrines are clarified in what we call the Baptist faith and message. I'll remind you that the foundational text for this series is actually uh, found in the book of Titus, Titus chapter 1, verse number 9. And so as we review just a little bit, uh, wrap your mind around this, tune your heart to what's being said here uh, by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul to Titus as he describes uh, some of the characteristics of godly leadership, elders in the church. And he says he must be bold, uh, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine uh, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, we believe this is vitally important in the day and age in which we live because uh, there are many today who are saying, well, it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere in what you believe. As Kyle mentioned earlier, uh, to ask a person if they're a Christian and for them to respond in the affirmative can mean a lot of different things. Uh, in fact, I, I can remember asking some people that question, and I'll say, well, upon what do you base that? And they'll say something like, well, I was, I was born a Christian, meaning I was born into a, a home that, where the, the family professed to be Christians, and we went to church, and so they would say, I was born a Christian. Um, others will point to uh, maybe some good works. Well, here's some things I'm doing. They'll, they'll talk about their spiritual resume, so to speak, and it centers around good things, but, but no real clear uh, testimony of what it is to, to be in Christ and to have turned from one's sin to faith in Jesus Christ. And then certainly beyond that, uh, you get to a lot of the things that are being addressed in our culture today, and man, you just get a whole conglomeration of things. And you've got churches that uh, even would call themselves Baptists who believe some things very differently than, than we do. And so, uh, again, I want to make clear that my goal in this series of messages is not to make you a Baptist, um, nor is it to fuel some sort of you know, fire of theological arrogance whereby you can win the next argument. That's not the point either. I do believe it's critically important that we know what we believe and why we believe it. Um, I, I was amazed at when I was doing my undergrad work at, uh, at school and, and when I was in a Bible doctrines class, and I never forget our professor asking us some key questions, and some of the responses just amazed me. Uh, he would say, well, why do you believe that? And they would say, well, like, that's, that's what my youth pastor said. Or that's what, it would be things like that. There was no real clear understanding of why we believe these things. Uh, and so that's, that's the reason and the purpose really behind this series of messages, is for us to get a firm grip on the confession of our faith. And we, we would acknowledge that there are certain doctrines that we would not consider, um, you, you know, some that are considered secondary in nature, and, and you know, on which we might find some disagreement uh, in terms of, of how we would interpret certain things. But then there are other key doctrines that we're looking at here as it relates to the scriptures, as it relates to our view of God and, and who Jesus Christ is and the working of the Holy Spirit and some of these key things that we would say these things are just not negotiable for us. Uh, and so it does matter what you believe, and it matters why you believe it. Now, let me remind you that doctrine literally means teaching. 
it's instruction or that which is taught. It's a, it's, it's a developed set of truths or practices which are to be learned and followed. And so just by way of review, let me, uh, let me remind you that we've already looked at Article 1 that is entitled The Scriptures. That is, what, what, what we believe about the Bible. Uh, that's critically important, isn't it? Because it is the foundation. Uh, we often say here that we are biblically based, Christ-centered, and gospel-driven. And those things all fit together for a reason. Okay? We say that we're biblically based because we believe that this book is authoritative. Okay? And so even the Baptist faith and message submits to this book. Okay, it's born out of Scripture, and that's why if you take a, a look at the copy at a copy of the Baptist Faith and Message, with each of these articles, there are a number of different biblical references uh, that would indicate to you that it is born out of Scripture itself. Okay, uh, and so that's why we're we're unpacking it in the way that we are. But of the Scriptures, we learned uh, that the Word of God is inspired. That is, it is God breathed. Okay, it's not just inspiring. It's not just good literature. Uh, it is a book that is alive. It's described that way. Uh, and so it is, it is inspired. It is truthful. Uh, it is completely true uh, in every area to which it speaks. It is authoritative. It is complete. And so we would say that Scripture is God's inspired, completed revelation of himself to humanity. And it's through uh, the providence of God and, and his sovereign direction through the ages that God has preserved for us his inerrant and infallible word. Well, beyond that, what does it mean? It means that we're to know it. It means that we're to understand it. We're to be students of the Word. Uh, And then we are to, of course, practice it. And so it's not enough to just have a head knowledge of these things. Uh, We're to apply them to our hearts and to our lives and and live out what we find here. Then we looked at Article 2, which is entitled God. Uh, We would call that theology proper. And in that, we asked and hopefully answered two big questions. Uh, The first one being, does God exist? We looked at a lot of different beliefs uh, about God, um, polytheism, uh, and pantheism, and all these different views. Uh, does God exist, and what is God like? And we believe that God can be understood in terms of who He is and what He does. God uh, is intelligent, spiritual, personal, holy, all-powerful, all-knowing, infinite. God creates God rules, God redeems, God judges, God gives life, God loves, God reveals himself. And with that, God desires a response from man. Uh, Now, this is not a belief that's held by all all of the different world religions. There are some who would find it very foreign that we believe we can have a relationship with God. Um, They view God as some distant force, maybe, Uh, that maybe has created, but then has removed himself from that creation, and so cannot enjoy a relationship with God. But we believe, biblically speaking, that God desires a response from us. That is repentance, uh, because we're born in sin, and we're going to be looking at that in the the weeks to come through this series of messages. Uh, But So then there's a problem. (laughs) Uh, In fact, I, I often say, fundamentally, the Bible is a book about people who have a problem with God, and that problem is sin. And the amazing thing about it is that God has remedied that problem through uh, the Lord Jesus Christ that we're going to be looking at t- today. And so um, you see these, these responses, uh, even this morning, we say that worship is a response to who God is and what he has done and what he is doing. Uh, and, and that is all through his self-disclosure. And then we said that the one and only living and true God is revealed in Scripture to be a trinity of three eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet still one. Not three gods, okay? Three persons, 
one God, a unity. God is a triunity. And so uh, the biblical witness is clear. There is only one God distinct in person, but without division of nature, essence, or being. Okay, then last week we looked at what is called Article 2A, that is God the Father. If we believe that God is a triunity, last week we looked at at God the Father. And I'll remind you that God the Father reigns with providential care over His universe. He, His creatures, the flow of the stream of human history according to the purposes of His grace. He is all-powerful, He is all-knowing, He is all-loving and all-wise. God is Father in truth. To those who become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ, He is fatherly uh, in His attitude toward all men. And so we uh, looked at uh, the, the sometimes erroneous belief that we're all God's children. Well, what exactly does that mean? Okay, in the sense that God is the giver of life, uh, there is that that sense which kept in its its rightful bounds. It, that that is truthful. Uh, but God is really fatherly uh, over all creation, but is Father over all who believe. And then we looked at Romans chapter 8 last week and uh, discovered there in Paul's writing that God's children are led by the Spirit, are being led by the Spirit, uh, producing the fruit of the Spirit then uh, in that process that we call sanctification. God's children are given access uh, to God by the Spirit. God's children are assured by the Spirit. And so I hope that those are things that characterize you and your relationship with the Lord, uh, that you are uh, progressively becoming more like Christ, Okay, that you may look back over the course of your life and say, man, thank God that I'm not what I once was. Uh, by the grace of God, I'm every day becoming more like my Lord and Savior. And uh, we want to see that work in each of our lives. And so today we turn our attention to Article 2B, which is God the Son. God the Son. And I want, to, I want you to see the wording of it here. Christ is the eternal Son of God. In His incarnation as Jesus Christ, He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus perfectly revealed and did the will of God, taking upon Himself human nature with its demands and necessities and identifying Himself completely with mankind, yet without sin. He honored the divine law by His personal obedience and in His substitutionary death on the cross made provision for the redemption of men from sin. He was raised from the dead with a glorified body and appeared to his disciples as the person who was with them before his crucifixion. He ascended into heaven and is now exalted at the right hand of God where he is the one mediator, fully God, fully man, in whose person is effected the reconciliation between God and man. He will return in power and glory to judge the world and to consummate his redemptive mission. He now dwells in all believers as the living and ever-present Lord. So there is Article 2b, God the Son. Now with that, let's look at Philippians chapter 2 then. Philippians uh, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is one of his prison epistles. You find that uh, here in the first chapter. Uh, he talks about being uh, imprisoned there. And, uh, and so as Paul experienced life in this Roman prison, he focuses on the themes of prayer and the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul's focus on Jesus relates to life. Now, we would say that this is an epistle of joy, and yet it was written from a prison cell. Pretty amazing when you stop and think about it. Uh, and so uh, the church at Philippi, to whom Paul is writing here, encountered um, a couple of problems. 
The first problem was one of rivalry uh, between believers. Now, that never happens today, right? We don't have any of that going on. No. Uh, no, in fact, many times we do. Um, a dissension in the church. And so Paul addressed this issue by admonishing these uh, Philippian believers uh, by saying, don't, don't look on your own selfish interest. This isn't all about you. Uh, but humbly look to the needs of others. And then he gives this example. He says, in that regard, here's what Jesus did. Uh, he emptied himself of the prerogatives and positions that were his. And, and, and then the second problem uh, faced by the Philippian church was the rumblings of persecution. And we see that really throughout the New Testament, the early church. I mean, there were always these at least rumblings of, of persecution. And, and so uh, the, the Roman emperor Nero uh, claimed to be Lord. And so with that background, then Paul reminded them there is only one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so while he was addressing some very real needs at that time to those uh, Philippian believers, uh, we certainly see here uh, that uh, he is introducing to us and describing for us who Jesus Christ is as God the Son. And so let's look at that this morning. Um, pick it up in, uh, in verse number 5 of Philippians chapter 2. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the Baptist Faith and Message article on God the Son really, in many ways, follows the text that we just read here in Philippians chapter 2. And so let's first consider this morning the pre-existence of Christ. Uh, some people mistakenly think that as we celebrate Christmas and the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are somehow celebrating the beginning uh, of God the Son. Okay, We don't believe that to be true. Uh, and, and so we look at the pre-existence of Christ. Christ is the eternal Son of God. He possessed the, the, the nature or the form. The word uh, in the original language is the word morphe of God. And so it affirms that he possessed all of the essential attributes or qualities of, of godness, we might say. Uh, Jesus lacked nothing in terms of, of what it means to be God. And so uh, Jesus is not like God Jr. or JV God or anything like that. Okay, He's fully God, fully man. Christ has always been, always will be. Okay, uh, Not a man adopted by God because of his righteousness. Uh, he was not, as, as some might say these days, a God-intoxicated man. He is very God of very God. Now, Paul affirms that Jesus was equal with God. Again, that Greek word translated equal is the word from which we get uh, our English word isosceles. And so if you have an isosceles triangle, that is a triangle with two equal sides. Uh, and so he was equal with the Father in every way. And then John expressed this beautifully uh, in the opening of his gospel. You remember there in John chapter 1, 
And it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the, the Word made flesh, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so that phrase, uh, in the beginning, uh, recalls the opening of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Christ was equal with God the Father in time. Christ is co-eternal with God. He is co-equal in position. He was with God, John tells us there. Now, that the preposition translated with uh, is a preposition that expresses the idea of a face-to-face relationship. And so Christ possessed the position of being face-to-face equal with God. The eternal Son of God is God. Let's consider, secondly, this morning, the humiliation of Christ. Uh, You'll notice again in verse number 7, Paul tells us, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He goes on to say in verse number 8 there, being found in human form, he humbled himself. Humbled himself. This is the humiliation of Christ. Uh, the, The New International Version translates that phrase, he made himself nothing. Uh, the, the King James Version says that he made himself of no reputation. Uh, he became flesh. Not only is Christ the pre-existent Son, he is the incarnate Son. He is God in human flesh. Incarnation means in flesh. Um, with skin and bones, all right? Uh, it's been described as God moved into the neighborhood in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, and uh, and so we understand, uh, as in, in his humiliation, that was his becoming human flesh. Now, the, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, I think, clarifies uh, something that was stated in the 63 document. Uh, it stated that the Son took upon himself the demands and necessities of human nature. Um, but we understand that an individual can temporarily assume the demands or the necessities of, for example, of a foster parent without having the nature of a parent. Uh, And so the incarnation of Jesus involved more than him simply taking upon himself the demands of human nature. Uh, The eternal Son of God took upon himself human nature. Uh, And so uh, in the incarnation... The Son of God became fully God, fully man. All right? the, the Son united in one person, full humanity and full deity. And so the union of, of the God-man was this voluntary union. Now, few people realize, I've found out over the last several years, that the Orthodox position uh, has confessed that the union of the God-man was a permanent union. Okay, the union of God and man was not some historic truth uh, that was limited to the 30-some years of Jesus' earthly life here as Jesus Christ. The Son remains the God-man. Okay, the Son forever will be the God-man. Uh, and so the Baptist faith and message underscores this. Uh, with this. Listen to the terminology again. He ascended into heaven and is now exalted at the right hand of God, where he is the one mediator, fully God, fully man. And then it affirms that he, the Lord, ascended in heaven to, is fully God, fully man. He permanently and everlasting became the God-man. Paul proclaimed, For there is one God, present tense, one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 
He wrote that to the younger Timothy. Uh, one mediator today, our mediator today, is, is a man. So to, to combat a, a denial of the humanity of Jesus, uh, John wrote, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Um, he entered our experience by being born. Uh, he is the eternal son. He is the incarnate son. He is the, the born son. Um, we, we say that, that as creator, God um, spoke into existence this world out of nothing. Ex nihilo is, what, is, is the terminology, out of nothing. And so then you think about how that translates over into the doctrine of what then we call the virginal conception of Jesus Christ. We say he was born of the Virgin Mary. We just read those words a moment ago. Luke describes this miracle in terms of the, the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary in Luke chapter 1 there. Um, and, and, and So again, while I, I don't pretend to understand uh, the virginal conception of the Lord Jesus Christ, I certainly affirm it. I, I believe it to be true. The word overshadowing there from Luke's gospel uh, that occurs uh, in what's called the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, is used to describe the Shekinah glory of God. Uh, that we find in the tabernacle and in the temple uh, there in the Old Testament. And so the Shekinah glory of God overshadowed Mary and impregnated Mary. The outcome uh, of the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary was the unique, virginally conceived God-man, Jesus Christ. There's an ancient heresy uh, that's called Hoffmanite Christology that denies uh, that Jesus received his human nature from Mary. Uh, and so with that uh, thinking, they, they would say then that, that Mary provided really only a, a surrogate womb through which Jesus passed. Uh, they're, they're, that, that form of Christology, uh, I believe, contradicts the Word of God. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we refer to it as the, the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. It prophesied that out of the seed of woman would come a man who would crush the head of the serpent. Uh, Paul affirmed that Jesus was a descendant of Adam according to the seed or the flesh in Romans chapter 1. Then in Galatians chapter 4, uh, it claims that Jesus was born of woman. Uh, and and the, the, the preposition thereof, uh, it, it, uh, it denotes a source. Uh, so Jesus Christ possessed the nature of full humanity. The source of that humanity was was Mary. And so in his humiliation, he took upon himself the form of a servant. He was in the form, the morphe of God in his pre-existent state. He became the morphe of a servant or a slave in his incarnation. And so the one who had all position, all power, all privilege entered into our experience as a servant. As a servant, the one with no position, no, no power, no privilege. Jesus said of himself, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So if there was ever anyone who could come along and say, well, I really deserve to be served, Jesus, Jesus didn't assume that position. He was a servant. Uh, he, he was a servant. He came to serve and to, to seek and to save those who are lost. And so then that brings us to number three then this morning, the, the substitutionary death of Christ. He died as our substitute. He died in our place. 
Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before his, his conception that the servant took upon himself our iniquities. Uh, we've often said that the, the way that we would describe the gospel in four words is Christ in my place. Christ in my place. Again, Jesus explained the significance of his death when he said, I have come to give my life as a ransom for in the place of many. The New Testament contains many pictures of the death of Christ and all of those uh, analogies of the cross, they find their meaning in the doctrine of the substitutionary nature of the death of Christ. So when we say that Christ is our example, what does that mean? That means he died in our place. When we say that he loves us with a sacrificial love, what does that mean? That means he gave his life for us. He paid a debt he didn't owe. We owed a debt we couldn't pay. It's why scripture tells us that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He is the reconciler. Okay, the, the one who uh, reconciles sinful man with holy God. The substitutionary death of Christ. And then finally, as we look at the last part of our text here, we see the exaltation of Christ. The exaltation of Christ. Uh, that involves the literal, physical resurrection of Jesus. He conquered death. Now some would claim that Jesus' resurrection was merely a, a spiritual resurrection. Now, we believe it was a, a, a bodily, physical resurrection. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. He said, what, what does this, meaning the, the resurrection, mean? This means that Jesus is Lord. The resurrection means our justification. And so Paul taught he was delivered over to death for our offenses. He was raised for our justification. And then what does that mean to our daily lives? We're told that we have indwelling us that same resurrection power. The same power that brought Jesus back to life, that that same power that that allowed Jesus to conquer death after his resurrection is the same power that's at work within us, his exaltation. It includes his ascension. Scripture tells us that Jesus appeared uh, for over a 40-day period to his disciples, his followers, and then on the Mount of Olives, they saw him rise or ascend uh, into the heavens. They observed a visible, physical ascension. If Jesus had, uh, had ascended to heaven just spiritually, uh, then they maybe would have wondered if Jesus would appear again. Then maybe they would reason, well, he, he, he skipped appearing this week, but maybe he'll appear next week. I know the, the ascension marked the end of his appearances. They, 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 they learned a, a very important lesson there. Whether Jesus Christ is physically here or not, he is still here. He's still here. And then his exaltation involves the being seated at the right hand of the Father, we're told. He sat in a position as, as, as king. It's a, it's a royal imagery. He sat in a position of honor as, as high priest. And in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews affirms that the priest stood daily to offer their sacrifices. That's because their work was never finished. But Jesus, when he came as our high priest, the work was finished. The work of redemption uh, was complete. The sacrifice had been made. It's for that reason that that, that John the Baptist cried there in the wilderness, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Once for all. It's finished. It's finished. What was pictured in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ in his substitutionary death. 
And it's finished. It's finished. And then that exaltation, of course, involves his return. The Baptist faith and message states he will return in power and glory. He'll return personally. He'll return visibly. He'll return gloriously. I don't know when he's returning. For that matter, you don't either. I mean, we could go back and look at a number of different individuals, even recently, who've tried to, to suggest that it was a particular day. You know, 88 reasons that Jesus is returning in 1988. You know, that kind of thing. We, we don't know. But we are to certainly live our lives in the light of his return, his imminent return. He's, he's sovereign in the matter of his return. Uh, the, the emphasis of, of, of Scripture is not the when of his coming. The emphasis is on the fact that he is coming. He's coming back. So what should that do for us? What should that stir up within us? It should stir up an anticipation for his return. It, it should push us in the direction of holiness, right? To be living for him, to honor and glorify him in our lives. It should cause us to, to work all the, the harder to bring people to a saving knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. So we're, we're waiting with anticipation. We're, we're watching with anticipation. We're working faithfully as we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords because Scripture tells us with certainty He's coming back. He's coming back. My simple question to you today would be this. Are you ready for His return? Are you ready? You may be here today and you would say, well, you know, I... I, I think I am. I, I'm, I'm probably as, about as ready as anybody can be. I've tried really hard to be a good guy. I, I've, I, I'm doing some, some good stuff. Uh, the only way that you can truly be ready for the return of Christ is to turn from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Savior and Lord. Now, Paul goes on to say here that there, there will be this time when every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, is that suggesting a, a universalism that, that eventually everyone will be saved? We're all going to be in heaven? I, I, that's not what it's teaching. No, it, it, there will come a day when everyone will recognize Jesus as Lord for who he is, but not as Savior. I wonder today, have you... Turn from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, recognizing him as Savior, as the one who died that substitutionary death for you, for you, died in your place. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church Van Alstine. FBCVA is located at 121 East Marshall Street in Van Alstine, Texas. Or you can visit us online at www.fbcva.com. Be sure to visit the Sermon Archive for more messages from this and other series.